Hello everybody, my name is Sue Stephen and I'm a specialist nurse at Reflux UK and with me today is Adam Harris, a consultant gastroenterologist who has worked in around Tunbridge Wells and Seven Oaks for 24 years. He graduated from Charing Cross Medical School in 1987 and spent the following decade in and around London training in gastroenterology. He was awarded an MD for his original research on peptic ulcers and helicobacter pylori in 1995, so we're very privileged to have him here today to discuss H. pylori. Hello, Adam. Good morning, Sue. Hi. I was just thinking that maybe we should start with the sort of history of H. pylori because it's a fascinating um, subject and how it was actually discovered and in sort of quite recent times, actually. So I just wondered if you could sort of tell me a bit about the history of it and how it was um, originally found. Absolutely. Um, It is an amazing story. Um, And when it was all first happening, I had just um, graduated as a junior doctor and sort of felt at that time that this was science actually evolving during my lifetime, which is why I became so interested in it. Um, So the history books show you very clearly that this was first isolated, uh, the bacterium was first isolated by Barry Marshall, who at that time uh, was a junior researcher in gastroenterology, and Robin Warren, who was a consultant histopathologist in Australia in 1982. But it goes back slightly before that because Warren, for some years, had noticed that samples or biopsies taken at endoscopy from patients with duodenal ulcers appeared to show colonies or groups of spiral-shaped bacteria in a particular part of the stomach called the antrum. Now, he thought this was really unusual, but couldn't take it any further. And his colleagues uh, poo-pooed this and said, oh, yes, you know, that this is absolutely nothing. And then Warren looked back through the history books and he was aware that way back in, I think, 1892 or something, an Italian pathologist, so similar to Robert Warren, but from a different country, a chap I think called Bizozero, Bizozero, he described the presence of these spiral bacteria in the stomachs of dogs. But the problem was everyone just thought that, you know, the dogs had died and post-mortem uh, bacteria had colonized the stomachs. And again, no one took that any further. Um, But basically, Warren kept being fascinated by this. And then Marshall came along and said, look, you know, I've got some time. I'm a researcher. I'd be really interested in helping. So they started studying this together. But the amazing thing was they couldn't take it any further because they couldn't grow anything. They couldn't prove what was going on. And then there was a long Easter weekend. And this is is absolutely true. And they came back on the, uh, the Tuesday and the Petri dishes, the uh, the culture, if you like, the medium where they had left the biopsies over a long weekend, there appeared to be, for the first time, growth of these bacteria. And they then looked at them and used stains on them and worked out that this was a new, a new genus, something that hadn't been discovered before. And they gave it a name, Campylobacter pyloridis, because they thought from the staining it was related to a Campylobacter species. Um, And in addition, around the same time, the pathologist Warren worked out that there was inflammation associated with this 
bacterium. And one thing led to the other. And finally, they published a paper in The Lancet in June the following year, 1983, describing this unique finding, the relationship with the stomach biopsies and with the chronic inflammation in this part of the stomach in patients with duodenal ulcers. And this was a landmark discovery. Indeed, it was recognized subsequently by them being awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2005. Something very special indeed. Following that discovery, uh, a lot of people still didn't actually believe it. They thought it was commensals. It was an incidental finding. It was related to the way the biopsies were taken. There was every explanation uh, to try and dismiss their findings. And then <laughs> some years later, Barry Marshall, against the advice of his wife, uh, he actually drank a live culture uh, of this, he, of the, at that time, Campylobacter pyloridis. He then developed uh, indigestion and he was endoscoped and samples were taken from his stomach and confirmed that he was now infected with Campylobacter pyloridis, having previously had an endoscope with barbs, showing he neither had any inflammation or the bacteria. So this, if you like, uh, was a human trial showing the relationship between the new discovery uh, and, and new inflammation in the stomach lining. Absolutely amazing. But can I quickly add that in line with what his wife wished, he very rapidly then took antibiotics uh, and was shown to uh, have cured the infection. <laughs> That's dedication to his uh, research, I have to say. And did it make his um, colleagues actually listen to him better, do you think, by doing that? Well, um, I think it probably did. Um, and in addition, a subsequent paper did describe uh, this relationship. And I think uh, people started to really take it all a bit more seriously there. So what um, symptoms does H. pylori cause and, and what problems does it give people? Um, well, the, the first thing to say is that the majority, more than 80 percent, more than 80 percent of people who are colonized with Helicobacter pylori, have absolutely no symptoms. It really is an innocent bystander. And, and that's a very, very important take home message that worldwide, the majority of people who are colonized with infection come to no harm. We do know though, that there are three important diseases or conditions that are associated with this infection. The first of which is duodenal or gastric ulcers, otherwise known as peptic ulcers. So the duodenum is the first part of the small bowel and that area, otherwise known as the duodenal bulb, can become inflamed and there can be a break in the lining called a duodenal ulcer. If a stomach or gastric ulcer develops, usually in an older age group, then again that is called a peptic ulcer if it is associated with the infection. That probably accounts for about 5 to 10% of people in the developed world who are colonized by the infection. Worldwide, we know that Helicobacter pylori is associated with the development of stomach cancer, not cancer that affects the very top part of the stomach called the cardia, but the cancer that affects the, the body or the lower part of the stomach. Now, within developed countries, that type of stomach cancer is actually very unusual and become inc becoming increasingly rare. 
But in the developing countries and parts of Asia in particular, it is a more common malignancy. And H. pylori is undoubtedly associated with an increased risk of developing that condition. Last, the third <coughs> condition is that it may cause a very, very unusual form of lymphoma of the stomach called gastric mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue, otherwise known as MALT or MALToma. And some years ago, it was shown that in patients who develop this unusual form of stomach lymphoma, who are also infected with Helicobacter pylori, eradication of the bacterium cures the disease. It cures the malignancy. I mean, how amazing is that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely astounding. That so just amazing. to reiterate, just to reiterate, the majority of patients with Helicobacter pylori have no symptoms. It's an innocent bystander. About 5 to 10% may develop a peptic ulcer. Less than 1% may be associated with stomach cancer. And even a smaller amount may get this maltoma. So symptoms are slightly tricky with H. pylori because dyspepsia, uh, which otherwise known as indigestion, which is upper abdominal discomfort that um, may be associated um, with nausea. Um, dyspepsia is very, very common. But in the absence of a peptic ulcer, so in the absence of a gastric or a duodenal ulcer, there's not good or convincing evidence that eradication of H. pylori will lead to a long-lasting cure of this so-called uncomplicated or functional dyspepsia. So in patients who might go to their GP or to a, a consultant with dyspepsia, sometimes a blood test or another test, which we'll talk about later, may be done to look for Helicobacter pylori. And if found, eradication of the bug may be recommended. But unless the patients have an underlying peptic ulcer, they are unlikely uh, to have a long-lasting cure of their symptoms. By contrast, if someone presents with symptoms very characteristic of a peptic ulcer, uh, namely a sort of a chronic relapsing history of indigestion or dyspepsia, and they're found to have Helicobacter pylori, and that is eradicated, then it is very likely they will be cured of their underlying peptic ulcer and have no further problems. Again, a, a remarkable thing to be discussing because in the 50s, 60s and 70s, patients who had a duodenal or recurring gastric ulcer um, had really terrible, terrible relapsing symptoms, often interfered with quality of life, may have been complicated by bleeding or perforation, requiring ultimately emergency or planned surgery. Whereas nowadays, or indeed since the 1990s, we've known that simply giving a course of treatment would cure that condition. And indeed, upper GI surgery, um, as I'm, I'm sure my colleague, Mr. Boll would agree, has changed radically over the last 30 to 40 years. And it is now very unusual indeed uh, to operate you know, on patients with peptic ulcer disease. Yes, I mean, the, it's changed the sort of the diagnosis and the, the, the actual treatments, hasn't it, amazingly with this discovery. So that's quite, that's quite astounding. And I'd just like to ask, Adam, why, why do some people have problems um, with H. pylori and, and develop peptic ulcers and other people don't? 
That's an absolutely fascinating question, Sue. Um, and something that I, I spent my two years in research trying to um, unpick. So what we do know is the single most important determinant is the initial interaction between the Helicobacter pylori, the bacterium, and the host. So when the host is first exposed to the bacterium, this initial interaction is what will eventually determine the outcome of the infection. Now, when the host is first infected, the H. pylori has a number of different proteins, and these will lead to a reaction from the host's immune system or immune response. Now, if the immune response allows the infection to predominantly colonize the lower parts of the stomach called the gastric antrum, then this patient may be at risk of developing a peptic ulcer. By contrast, if the immune response and the interaction between that and the bacterium means that the bacterium predominantly lives in the body of the stomach, then it is much less likely they will ever develop a duodenal ulcer they may develop a gastric ulcer, but they may also be at risk of developing a malignancy or cancer long term. If the host interaction doesn't lead to particularly severe inflammation or gastritis in the body of the stomach, or a very low level of immune response or inflammation in the antrum, then it's likely that the individual will have no symptoms or disease from the infection. And this occurs in about 80% of the majority of patients. So how does it cause a duodenal ulcer? Well, in that 5 to 10% of patients where the H. pylori predominantly lives in the antrum or the lower part of the stomach, it quite unbelievably, and it still amazes me to this day, the inflammatory response will inhibit the D cells that live in the antrum. And these D cells produce, normally produce a chemical or hormone called somatostatin. But when the H. pylori causes inflammation and inhibits the D cells, they produce less somatostatin. There is then less inhibition on another hormone called gastrin, and the gastrin level rises, so-called hypergastrinemia. Now, a high level of gastrin stimulates acid to be produced. So in these individuals, the inflammation in the antrum ultimately raises gastric acid secretion or output. And when that hits the first part of the duodenum, the duodenal bulb, it leads to a change. It leads to inflammation in the duodenum and ultimately the acid will break down. It will break down the lining or the mucosa. And that breakdown or mucosal break is caused an ulcer. If the infection is then successfully eradicated, the inflammation in the antrum will resolve. The D cells will no longer be inhibited. Somatostatin production will return. Gastrin levels will fall to normal, as will the acid output. And the patient is cured of a duodenal ulcer. Absolutely fascinating. Now, in folk where the infection predominantly... I, I mean, it's incredible, Sue. In those patients where the infection 
and the host interaction leads to inflammation in the body of the stomach, so-called pan-gastritis. Under those circumstances, the acid output is actually reduced slightly because the inflammation there interferes with the acid-producing or cells called proton pumps, and that inflammation reduces their ability to secrete acid. And therefore, patients will not ever develop a duodenal ulcer, but they may, may develop a gastric ulcer, particularly in older age, or if exposed to an anti-inflammatory drug such as ibuprofen. But it's thought that this chronic inflammation with low levels of acid in the presence of possible dietary factors and maybe a genetic susceptibility in the Far East and developing countries may then predispose to the development of cancer of the body of the stomach. But it's not just the H. pylori inflammation that causes it. There are other factors that really need to be present. And that is why in developing countries, despite the pangastritis, stomach cancer is very, very unusual indeed. In those patients with pangastritis, with the slightly lower levels of acid production, this may explain why they appear to be at lower risk of reflux disease because they produce less acid and therefore there is likely to be less acid-induced problems in the lower esophagus even if they do suffer with reflux. Once again, in a patient with Helicobacter pylori, infection leading to pangastritis, if the infection is eradicated successfully, the inflammation will resolve and the acid output will return to normal. The Helicobacter pylori has evolved to have a number of different proteins which interact with the host's immune response. Uh, they've all got different names, which all makes it sound rather complicated, but the ones that some of our listeners, listeners may have heard of is called CAG-A, and CAG-A is thought to be a virulent, a virulent factor, um, and it codes for something called VACA or vacuolating toxin, and it's thought that this may stimulate uh, the host immune response via cytokines. But exactly how it does this is unclear. And however stimulating it was to suggest that CAG-A was the important factor that led some H. pylori and not others to cause duodenal ulcer disease or cancer, I'm afraid that patients can get disease even in the absence of CAG-A strains. And therefore, that original theory hasn't really been supported uh, by the science What's absolutely essential is the urease to allow the bacterium to survive in an acidic environment. Uh, that is present in all of the Helicobacter pylori, as are so-called adhesins, uh, which help the bacterium attach to the stomach lining or the epithelium. I was just, you mentioned earlier on about um, sort of diagnosis and, and how, how we go about doing that. And I know that there are a number of different um, tools that you can use and I just wondered if you could sort of explain you know how, how we use those to diagnose H. pylori. Absolutely um, so there are indeed many different tests ways to diagnose current or previous infection uh, it's best to think about it as non-invasive and invasive and if I can talk about non-invasive first um, 
patients can have a blood sample taken to measure IgG antibodies to Helicobacter pylori. It's relatively cheap, uh, does involve a blood test, and in a validated laboratory is very accurate. Now, the IgG antibodies mean that it will be positive if patients have been previously infected and treated with the infection, treated for the infection. So the role of the IgG antibody is a screening test to see if there is current infection, but it is not of any value to look for successful eradication or treatment of the infection because those IgG antibodies may remain positive for at least a year after successful treatment. If a patient doesn't wish to have a blood test, then current infection with H. pylori may be detected using a stool or fecal antigen test. A small um, sample is provided and a validated laboratory will do a monoclonal test to see if there is evidence of antigen or proteins from the Helicobacter pylori. And this is very accurate uh, and is technically completely non-invasive. A 13-carbon urea breath test may be used to look for current infection. This involves drinking a, li a liquid and then providing breath samples into test tubes that are usually then returned by post to a validated laboratory where the amount of hydrogen after ingesting urea will be measured. It's, again, non-invasive, very straightforward but is used less and less nowadays as a diagnostic tool because it is more expensive than either the blood or the stool test. It's important with these tests that the patient should stop taking proton pump inhibitors such as omeprazole at least two weeks before doing the stool or the breath test and also stop taking any antimicrobial agents, any antibiotics, for four weeks before these tests. Otherwise, these medications may suppress the infection and reduce the sensitivity of the tests. Now that does not apply to the blood test for IgG antibodies, and that is probably the one advantage of that test, is if patients can't stop their medication, uh, you can still do the blood test. Now to check for successful eradication or cure of the infection, uh, the best test is the stool H. pylori monoclonal antigen test. The breast test can be used as well, but once again is less cost effective. But both these tests cannot be performed within 28 days of treatment. So once the patient has completed their treatment and stopped all medication, then at least 28 days later, these tests may be performed. And if they are now negative, then the patient has been cured of the infection. Now invasive tests are endoscopy based. So at endoscopy, uh, samples may be taken for three different modalities to look for the infection. The most common one is to place a sample in what's called a rapid urease test. Many years ago, it used to be called a CLO test. Uh, the CLO stood for CLO as in Campylobacter-like organism test. Helicobacter pylori produces a chemical called urease or an enzyme and what this does is it splits urea that is found in gastric juice into ammonia which is alkaline and also carbon dioxide. 
Now, we know that the gastric milieu where it lives is very, very acidic. So this urease enzyme allows the bacteria effectively to create an alkaline or higher pH environment. And we use that urease enzyme ability in the rapid urease or CLO test. Because if a sample containing helicobacter pylori is put into a little well on this tube, then if helicobacter pylori is present, it will change the urea in the solution into ammonia, ammonia being alkaline, or change a pH indicator that's also in the solution from usually yellow to bright red. And we will then have a result determining if the patient is infected or not with the bacterium, often um, before the patient leaves the endoscopy suite. So that is a fantastic biopsy-based test. Alternatively, samples can be taken and sent to the pathology laboratory to look under the microscope to see if there's any evidence uh, of Helicobacter pylori or placed in a culture medium and sent to microbiology. Now, the real value for that is if you're trying to check for antibiotic sensitivities to see whether the bacterium is sensitive or resistant to the antibiotics that you may wish to use to treat the infection. And is there more prevalence now of um, H. pylori becoming resistant to antibiotics? Yes, unfortunately, there is. This is one of the great problems we have with trying to successfully treat the infection is that the commonly used antibiotics to try and get rid of it, such as metronidazole and clarithromycin, the prevalence of resistance to those antibiotics is now increasing throughout the developed and developing world. Uh, metronidazole is commonly used in the developing world to treat infection, infections and diarrhea and is available across the counter. So by the time many patients have reached adulthood, they will have been exposed to metronidazole. And as they are infected with H. pylori, then this bacterium will gain resistance. Clarithromycin only came out, I think, about 25 years ago, um, but has been used very, very regularly to treat sinusitis, chest infections, bronchitis, sore throats uh, in primary care, both um, in developed countries and increasingly in developing countries. And therefore, those individuals who are also infected with H. pylori, the bacterium will acquire resistance to that antibiotic. Fortunately, Helicobacter pylori does not acquire resistance to penicillin. And therefore, we can still use amoxicillin in those patients who are not allergic to it to eradicate the infection. But the presence of resistance to the other antibiotics is a concern and appears to be an increasing problem. So do you then do a follow-up test to see how um, effective the um, treatment has been or do you not advocate that? In patients where it's important to eradicate the infection, so in those with a proven peptic ulcer or in those clearly at risk of stomach cancer, so a strong family history um, or early pre-cancerous lesions, or in those with multoma, it is essential to confirm successful eradication of H. pylori because the commonly used first-line regimes are probably only around 60 to 70% effective 
if a patient has a pre-existing metronidazole or clarithromycin resistant strain. So if the infection is not eradicated, then the peptic ulcer is likely to come back, the treatment for the mortoma will fail, and the idea of treating any pre-malignant lesions will not work. Um, what I would say is that if one has a suspicion that somebody might have a pre-treatment metronidazole or clarithromycin resistant strain, such as they remember receiving either of those drugs for unrelated conditions before, or they have failed a previous attempt at eradication, then a specific regime should be used to try and overcome that pre-treatment resistance rather than using one of the first-line regimes that already contain metronidazole or clarithromycin at standard doses because they are unlikely to work. And am I right in thinking, is there... Um patients who have been taking PPIs for a long time, um, does that have any effect on patients with H. pylori? So with regard to Helicobacter pylori, um, there are two words that have very specific meaning. There's clearance and eradication of the infection. Now, clearance refers to suppression of Helicobacter pylori. And interestingly, Sue, uh, proton pump inhibitors appear to inhibit the urease enzyme of Helicobacter pylori and effectively make it less active. But as soon as you stop the PPI, the urease recovers, the bacterium recovers, and it will recover fully. So PPIs may lead to clearance of Helicobacter pylori, but never when given alone, will ever eradicate the infection. Eradication of the bacterium is when effectively it is, if you like, uh, the infection is cured or the bacterium is killed. And that is defined as the absence of the bacterium at least 28 days after the end of treatment. And to obtain eradication of the infection, you need to have a PPI with at least two antibiotics for at least seven days. Now, other chemicals or remedies may lead to temporary clearance or suppression of Helicobacter pylori, such as bismuth-containing compounds, um, temporary treatment with antibiotics alone, and some of the remedies that may be used to treat in indigestion may lead to clearance of the Helicobacter pylori, but this is not the same as eradication and simply clearing or reducing or suppressing the infection will not alter the natural history of any of the disease processes that are caused by the infection. In different parts of the world, there seems to be a different rate of um, H. pylori in patients. Um, and I just wondered why that would be. Is that, is that how it's caught or how it's transmitted to other patients or other, between people? Um, we're not really quite sure how H. pylori is transmitted. And I know this does surprise a lot of people because most infections, we do know how they're transmitted. But what we know for absolute surety is there is no environmental source of H. pylori. It is caught from other human beings. And what we do know is it's most likely caught from family members, and it's most likely caught during the first few years of life. 
And therefore, there is evidence suggesting that it's probably caught from your mother. Um, and it is quite unusual to catch it as an adult. And once it's been successfully eradicated, it is very unlikely that one would be reinfected. Most people believe that the chance of reinfection or the chance of catching it for the first time as an adult is probably well less than 2%. Most people, the vast majority, therefore, of people who catch H. pylori have probably caught it during childhood, probably by the age of five to seven years of age. Now, we think that it is probably transmitted from vomit. But there is some suggestion that it may be also caught by the fecal oral route. And therefore, the relationship with the mother during breastfeeding and the closeness during the early years of life uh, may explain why in areas where there is poor sanitation, the risk of transmission via the fecal oral route between the mother and the child um, is probably more likely as opposed to the, the mother accidentally vomiting on the child. Uh, however, it, after somebody has vomited, it may be found in the oral cavity and thereafter it may be transmitted from the mother um, in saliva to, to the child. Uh, but you can see, having mentioned the different routes of transmission, that it is really understandable why it's very difficult to get reinfected um, or to catch it as an adult. Now, what's really interesting is the prevalence of H. pylori almost mirrors the social economic conditions of a particular country at that time. So where there are poor living conditions, particularly for children, then the prevalence of H. pylori is higher. Thus, the prevalence of the infection within developed countries is falling quite dramatically, whereas it's still relatively high um, in the developing countries and particularly in parts of Asia. When um, I want to find out the risk that a patient has of having H. pylori, I need to know two things. One is their age, um, and two, the social economic conditions that they experienced during childhood. So the age is quite a useful thing. So your average 80-year-old in the UK will have about an 80% chance of having H. pylori. Your average 20-year-old in the UK will have much less than the 20% chance of having H. pylori. Now this isn't because the risk of the infection increases with each age. It is what's called a cohort effect. That is your average 80 year old with an 80% chance of having H. pylori, 80 years ago would have been brought up in poorer living conditions than the 20 year old nowadays. And one way to clarify that is to ask the 80-year-old if when they were being brought up as a young child, did they have an outside toilet or did they have hot running water in the house? Because many 80-year-olds would have been brought up with outside lavatories, often uh, without a hand basin. And they would have, after um, been to the toilet, they would have then either not washed their hands or have gone into the kitchen, often with cold water, uh, to very temporarily and probably very inadequately wash their hands. And the same may have applied, of course, uh, to their parents. And we think this is why the average 80-year-old has an 80% chance of infection. And sadly, in developing countries, these conditions still exist, which would explain why they still have a high prevalence of the infection 
even in 20-year-olds. What's interesting about the infection, as I said earlier, is the vast majority of people don't have any symptoms from it. And that's why the average 80-year-old still has an 80% chance of having the infection, whereas if it did cause disease in the majority of people, then they would have had problems through their younger life that may have led to either attempted eradication or further investigation. I was reading that there are some studies which suggest that there is a crossover with um, reflux in patients and H. pylori, and that if you suppress H. pylori, people's reflux symptoms become worse. Is that, I mean, I don't know if that's, that was a small study, but I don't know if that's true or not, that sort of crossover at all. Absolutely. So what's really interesting is as the prevalence of Helicobacter pylori is falling in the developed countries, so is the prevalence of peptic ulcer disease. Indeed, a duodenal ulcer now in the absence of anti-inflammatory drugs is a very unusual finding in developed countries at endoscopy. But over this same period, the prevalence of gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GORD, has been steadily increasing. And this led to some researchers questioning whether Helicobacter pylori may actually reduce the risk of reflux disease whilst increasing the risk of peptic ulcer disease. And that if you eradicated the bacterium to cure the duodenal ulcer, were you exposing your patient to a future risk of reflux disease? At the same time, we're aware that proton pump inhibitors, which suppress acid, were being used increasingly for patients with reflux disease. And we wondered, therefore, whether the problem was that we were suppressing the helicobacter pylori and maybe leading to reflux symptoms. However, I can say with absolute certainty that there is no controlled or high quality evidence that eradicating Helicobacter pylori either worsens or causes gastroesophageal reflux. And if a patient has infection with H. pylori and also has reflux disease and the infection is eradicated, their reflux disease will not get worse. It is worth saying, however, that there is some evidence that if you have Helicobacter pylori and you take a proton pump inhibitor, the efficacy of the proton pump inhibitor at reducing gastric acid may be increased, i.e. a proton pump inhibitor with H. pylori appears to work more effectively than without H. pylori. So some people suggest that if you have reflux disease and you happen to be coincidentally infected with H. pylori and you need a proton pump inhibitor long-term, then maybe do not pursue eradication of the infection. Others though, as is so typical in medicine and science, say that if you do need a proton pump inhibitor long-term, then you really should eradicate the infection because when you suppress the infection with a proton pump inhibitor, it moves from the lower part of the stomach called the antrum to the body or the corpus of the stomach where it sets up inflammation which had not existed previously. And some people believe, without good long-term evidence, 
that chronic inflammation of the body of the stomach with Helicobacter pylori may predispose to malignancy. So the jury really is out on this. Do you look for H. pylori in patients with reflux disease in anticipation they may need a PPI long-term? Well, I personally wouldn't do that, but I know some patients may find on the internet that that should happen. What I would say though is if patients need a high dose of a proton pump inhibitor long-term for reflux disease, then maybe alternative options such as surgery should be considered. Thank you for that, it's fascinating. Um, the other thing I was going to ask, is there um, any association with H. pylori and Barrett's? Um, absolutely. So this is, again, a fascinating area. We know that Barrett's is a complication of gastroesophageal reflux disease and that long-term reflux is probably the mechanism by which Barrett's develops initially, albeit paradoxically, as a protective response and we've known from some years that the prevalence of Helicobacter pylori appears to be reduced in patients with Barrett's esophagus, just as we've known that it was reduced in patients with reflux disease. So that was not surprising. And the mechanism behind that is probably that in patients who have H. pylori that do not develop a peptic ulcer, i.e. in the 80%, the majority, H. pylori tends to cause inflammation in the body of the stomach. And when it causes inflammation in that area, it actually reduces gastric acid secretion. Therefore, if anything was to reflux into the esophagus, it's likely to have a higher pH, i.e. be less acidic than in those patients who don't have helicobacter. And therefore, it's thought that the reason reflux disease is probably less common in patients with Helicobacter pylori infection is because they have lower acidity. And the same mechanism is thought to account for the lower prevalence of Barrett's esophagus in patients with H. pylori, because we know that Barrett's is probably initiated by acid-induced damage, chronic recurrent acid-induced damage to the lower esophagus. And in patients with H. pylori, there will be lower acidity i.e. what is refluxed up, will be of a higher pH and less likely, probably, to cause the same damage and the Barrett's change. What we do know for absolute certainty is there is no evidence whatsoever that eradication of H. pylori will increase the risk of Barrett's or the risk of lower esophageal cancer. And so what do you think the future holds with H. pylori? Is there, are there going to be new treatments coming along, new antibiotics you think will be needed, or genotyping? Just where do you see, uh, where do you see the treatment of, it, of the disease? Absolutely. So we've had for um, probably about 30 years now um, antibiotics that will eradicate H. pylori, um, usually. So the classic first-line treatment for Helicobacter pylori has been a proton pump inhibitor, such as omeprazole, with either amoxicillin uh, or metronidazole uh, or clarithromycin, usually taken twice daily for about seven days. And that first-line combination in the presence of a suitably sensitive strain of H. pylori is probably, probably around 85, 90% effective if the patients take the tablets as prescribed. 
Unfortunately, though, as we're aware, the prevalence of resistance to metronidazole and clarithromycin is increasing, and the standard first-line therapies are probably um, below 70% effective under those circumstances. So what can you do? Well, there's a very, very exciting new development called reverse hybrid therapy. And reverse hybrid therapy has been shown in controlled trials, prospective high-quality controlled trials with H. pylori sensitivities on culture to be extremely effective even in the presence of pretreatment metronidazole or clarithromycin resistance. So what is it? What is reverse hybrotherapy? Well, it's taking a PPI such as a meprazole 20 milligrams with amoxicillin, assuming the patient does not have penicillin allergy, one gram twice daily for two weeks, but also taking clarithromycin 500 milligrams and metronidazole 400 milligrams twice daily for the first seven days only. So for the first seven days, you're taking three antibiotics and a PPI twice daily. But then for the last seven days, you're taking just the amoxicillin and the PPI twice daily. Now, what's interesting is despite that combination, it has been shown in the trial to be significantly better tolerated than traditional quadruple therapy, which has been used to eradicate these multi-resistant strains. The problem in the UK with quadruple therapy is that we don't have bismuth uh, or DINO anymore, and therefore we're really quite unable to use traditional quadruple therapy as it has been shown to work. Now, with reverse hybrotherapy, if the patient is allergic to amoxicillin, then most folk would replace the amoxicillin with tetracycline twice daily. But the evidence base for that uh, doesn't exist. Um, so latest kid on the block, reverse hybrid therapy, if you've got a challenging organism or you suspect the patient has a multi-resistant strain based on previous treatments or exposure. The other thing that's exciting, uh, but I don't think it's going to happen, and it's particularly relevant in view of um, the current um, problems we're having with the virus, is a vaccine to Helicobacter pylori. Now, this has been talked about uh, really for about 20 years, but the latest information is that there is still no large pharmaceutical or biotechnology company that has a current vaccine development program. Nothing is really happening. There are some H. pylori vaccines that are in development, but at an incredibly early stage so so-called phase one or preclinical. And these are composed of purified or recombinant components of the Helicobacter pylori antigens or proteins. Um, and I think to the best of my knowledge, one's called Epivax, uh, there's Helicovaxor, uh, and I, I can't remember the other one, but they are at such early stages um, that I, I think we are many, many years from a vaccine being developed to treat or prevent infection with Helicobacter pylori. Thank you for that, Adam. Well, Adam, thank you very, very much for taking part today in a really fascinating talk on H. pylori. And um, yes, have a nice rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.